Hello and welcome to A Decade Apart. Hey, I'm Calvin. And I'm Tim. And this week we're going to be talking about job automation, right? Yeah, um, we talked about it a little bit towards the end of our last episode when we touched on Brexit and how that will affect the technology industry. So looking forward to it today. Exactly, exactly. But before we get into the topic, we've got a bit of follow up. Um, so let's let's open this show properly. Um, in case you don't know, in case this is the first time you listen to the podcast, this podcast, we talk about politics and technology and how they come together or in, often push against each other. And um, last week, we talked about Brexit. And we've been doing a little bit of sort of, I guess, the discussion continued beyond that. And we uh, listened to a podcast called Exponent uh, by a chap called Ben Thompson and another guy called James Alsworth. And they pretty much summarized your views, right? Yeah, it was. I think it was interesting in terms of when they were talking about um, this whole idea of moral hazard and people within the banking industry sort of towards 2005, 2007, being actually incentivized by the system to take a questionably moral part. So it was just quite interesting to see how, even though they're pictured as the bad people in that situation, how sometimes by your environment you can just be pushed down a negative path for society. Exactly, exactly. And I think what was really interesting is they also talked a bit about what we're going to talk about today and how, um, you know, technology is driving this sort of, uh, you know, third industrial revolution that's going to massively change the way we work and the nature of the work that we do. We also had a Facebook page launched this week, didn't we? Yeah, so you can find us on Facebook, A Decade Apart Technology and Politics Podcast, or just put our handle at Decade Apart Pod, all lowercase. Exactly, exactly. So now that's our handle across Facebook and Twitter. I, I think that's a pretty lucky thing. Um, it was lucky. wasn't actually intentional at all. But uh, yeah, we have a handle now that I think works across the whole of the internet. So we just need to go around and subscribe to all the other services before anyone else does. Um, uh, we had a lot of uh, positive reaction again uh, from the episode last week. Um, I think one of the interesting things from the discussion last week is that this week, um, Theresa May uh, kicked off the general election. Uh, it's a bit of a surprise, right? Yeah, snap general election for June the 8th. I mean, it took, I remember calling you on the day of it. It took me by surprise. But when I thought about it, just looking at it backwards on, it just became more clear and clear that that was the path he was going to take. Exactly, exactly. And so it's strange because this is this election was supposed to be a focus on Brexit, but it's turning into a proper full on general election rather than just a Brexit focused general election. So um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to transpire, but maybe maybe we'll cover that uh, again in the future. Maybe maybe we'll talk about Estonia. Do you know about Estonia? No, I don't. Estonia is like the most digitally up to date uh, country in the world when it comes to voting. They have online voting, believe it or not. Oh yes, I wish we had online voting. <laughs> I just... That's another podcast. That's another, <laughs> That's podcast. another podcast. I don't want to get angry. <laughs> okay, so um, let's look at job automation. Um, one of the things. Uh, in the podcast by Ben Thompson and James Ellsworth, exponent. Um, one of the things about the podcast they talked about was this this real sort of challenge that technology is posing to the existing um, framework for jobs or employability or, or just em, you know employment in general, right? And how that friction isn't really being addressed because fundamentally companies are being managed by proxy, i.e. Uh, figures at the end of the year they're being managed by things like shareholder return they're being managed by you know numbers like profit and revenue rather than the social benefits that these companies are supposed to be producing i.e employment and, and so on and so forth right and um i think that was one of the interesting things that sort of kicked off kicked off a bit of thinking in my mind about we're at we're right at the cusp of this sort of technological change where um, you know, technology's enabled companies to develop automation that doesn't just automate tasks, but also automates cognitive functions, things that typically humans would have to think about. Exactly. I think that's what's um, taking it by surprise for a lot of people that, you like you said, you'd think sort of distributive roles and like the back end of shops would be the first jobs which would be automated. But actually, when you start to think about consultancy jobs and analyst roles, banking industry, law, etc., that even those are under fire and they're probably going to 
start going into way by robots pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even something as simple as call centers. Uh, uh, I think after we decided to do this podcast, I sent you a series of about four text messages and four conversations I'd had, which were clearly with automated systems, right? Uh, and they were doing very simple things. Like one of them was um, to sort out um, a refund that I needed for my uh, water for the year. So I get a charge at the end of the year saying this is how much water you've used. Um, this is how much we've overcharged you. How would you like a refund? Would you like it to go towards your next bill or just as a rebate? And I said a rebate. And the whole conversation was automated. Um, they, they implicitly asked me not to reply with anything but yes or no for that very reason. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is quite funny but it worked you know within three text messages i got a rebate and that's something that normally a i would have to check myself to yeah. even find out that i was owed money and two i'd have to then make a call go on a waiting queue and then have to explain the situation to a call center professional and no no offense to call center professionals they do a great job but this was just so smooth and easy and i didn't have to go through the hassle of making a call it's more efficient uh, like, Exactly. It's just more efficient and it's just easier from a customer experience perspective. And I think everyone would agree that these things, when they do reduce friction, you get a better customer experience. Uh, and technically, that means, you know, the call center professional has more time to answer more important calls or more challenging calls that maybe can't be automated so easily. Right. Yeah. Okay, and so and so let's 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 look at this um, topic in a little bit more depth. Um, before we get into this, I just want to sort of kill this myth, uh, not necessarily a myth or misconception, actually, between the difference between automation and artificial intelligence. So, Calvin, do you know the difference? Um, yeah, I'm just going to say no. <laughs> I could give a guess, but I'll leave it to you. <laughs> so the thing, the thing about these two terms is I think the reason they're normally um, sort of confused is because... Uh, the thought of AI normally leads to uh, automation, right? So if you can have a computer that can think, that can think cognitively in a way that is, um, you know, productive and actually works, then you can start to ask that cognitive thing to start automating tasks that a human would have normally done. Right. The problem is, is that that level of automation, that level of thinking is actually quite high level. That's very, very advanced um, level of computing, where in fact you don't need that, that many complex systems or that complex sort of development to design something that can just do repetitive tasks in an automated way because many of the things we do today are very automated if i take a very very simple example i don't need an artificial intelligence machine to run a till at tesco when i go and buy uh, something at the self-checkout right sure it, I just need buttons on the screen. I can work the till and the till knows what I'm doing. When I hit done, it automatically asks me to pay. It gives me the payment options. I give it a payment option and it's just removed someone in the middle. Uh, before, it was a Tesco professional doing that. Now I can interact directly with the machine. Amazon in the US have already gone one step further where they have brought in AI and what they have. Have you seen Amazon Go? No. So Amazon Go is a really interesting uh, example, uh, which goes the whole way where AI is being used. They have a shop where you walk in with your phone, okay, and you scan your phone at the entrance. And from that moment on, a, a plethora of artificial intelligence machine know where exactly you are in the, sh in, the sh in the shop, know exactly which shelves you're standing in front of. And when you pick something from the shelf, it knows exactly what you've picked. And if you put something back, it knows exactly what you've put back. The net effect is this, basically. You can go into the shop and just put stuff into your bag, okay, and walk out, and it automatically charges you for the shop. You don't need to go to a till. You just walk in, scan your phone, you do your shopping as usual, you can take stuff off the shelf, put it back, you can come back and put something back later. Um, the demos are really cool, and I think from the feedback online of people who've used the store in Seattle, um, it's going really, really well. They've had a couple of hiccups, of course, um, but this whole sort of setup is is like the dream. Imagine going to Tesco Extra and just walking in, putting what you want into your bag and walking out and know that the tr it's automatically charged you for everything. Yeah, it's like um, a more efficient of the scan and shop scheme that they have where you have that um, sort of like mobile, what's the word? what's the name for it? Mobile payments? No, it's the like the scan, yeah, the handheld scanner that you carry with your shopping oh, yes. in the basket. Yes. So I yes, guess yes, it just yes, yes. it just cuts out that last process in the payment. 
Exactly, exactly. And how Amazon have done it is essentially they've got a ton of things. They've got cameras all over the place. They've got sensors all over the place looking at every single detail. And they piece that together with a supercomputer in the background to figure out what you're taking and off the shelf and what you're putting on. And it knows who you are the minute you walk into the store because it uses your phone as a, as a, as a way to track your location around the store. So it's some really, really clever stuff. And that is that does require AI because the amount of inputs and outputs is so large that you need something to creatively think and make the right decisions um, while things are going on. So if so, you're going to like describe a relationship between the two, AI, if you have complex AI, more cases than none, someone will manipulate that to automation. But you don't necessarily need AI to have automation in the first place. Exactly, exactly. And that is exactly what's going on today. I think a lot of people are still under the assumption that AI is many, many years away. And because of that, they're not paying attention to the fact that automation, large scale automation is already here. It's already happening today. And it's already possible. Because if you do a job that predominantly requires a higher number of automated tasks, then those automated tasks can be codified. And then those codified uh, you know instructions can either be enhanced improved or optimized by a machine to do those things time and time and time again yeah i mean i wouldn't say that any no one is aware of this i mean the bank of england even two years ago suggested that in the next sort of decade or two decades 15 million jobs would be a risk of not extinction but just being switched over to automation so i think in terms of like policy development and people behind the scenes they do have this general feeling that this needs to be addressed but yeah. i guess it's not in um everyday discussion and discourse just between ordinary people so i think i think you're right but you're also wrong <laughs> so um <laughs> so, so smack the amount of times uh, you've said that to me <laughs> you're right but you're wrong so you're right People are aware of it. Yes, the Bank of England are aware of it. But if I walk out onto the street and I walk into uh, a retail store and I tell everyone there that in five years' time, they won't be needed here anymore because their job will be automated. They'd all laugh at me, right? Um, I'll go with yes. A sceptical yes. Well, well, okay, let me put it this way. Are they reskilling themselves in other professions in order to get around this? Um... Okay, let's go with the assumption that they're not. Okay, they're like, okay, so let me rephrase the question in another way. Are 15 million people aware that they need to reskill themselves in order to work in a profession that isn't at risk through high-level automation? Probably not. Exactly. And, that, and that's the point I'm making. Yes, the Bank of England are aware of it. I think the government is broadly aware of it, but they're still formulating a strategy around it. But if we take something as simple as driverless cars, for example, like driverless car technology, I think is the first one to really, really sort of push a button because the whole idea of a driverless future is very realistic. Time and time again, you're seeing the benefits of that technology. You're seeing uh, the simple argument. I think Elon Musk makes this argument that in, um, in the first billion miles of automated driving, there's only been one fatality and the fatality wasn't caused by the driverless car. Right, Man. and in the, if you take the same number of miles uh, driven by humans, you, there's like there's thousands and thousands of deaths, okay, caused by the person behind the wheel. And eventually, what's going to happen is uh, driverless uh, cars is going to become an argument not about whether or not there should be someone behind the wheel. But it's going to turn into a safety argument. That's what. That's actually what's going to tip over the edge. When when the government is faced with the statistics behind uh, someone driving their own car and automated driving, it's not going to be about the experience or whether me I want to. I'm a petrol head and I want to you know press the pedal and push the push the gears. It's going to be about safety. Can we save lives on the on the highway? Because every single day people are dying because of that. And yeah. When the government is faced with that decision. It just can't turn away the fact that driverless cars are safer, especially yeah. especially when everything is automated, right? So the risk isn't actually, you know, um, driverless cars on their own. It's actually this sort of mix between people driving their own cars and driverless cars having to deal with that as well. 
So you'll get this very sudden flip where governments around the world will start saying, okay, in the next six years, all cars on the road need to be automated. Once the technology is widely proven and available, every manufacturer has a working model for it and it's been tested well. Uh, a standard will come out maybe for the EU or for different countries around the world, and that will be the standard needed to be retrofitted into new cars so that any new car s- starting a certain date will have to be self, self-driven. self And then there'll be like a, I don't know, probably a scrappage scheme for old cars so that people can switch their old cars for driverless cars. Or you might have retrofitted systems that you just bung on top of the car and then it's driverless and so on and so forth. Yeah, what's crazy to me is sort of, in the private sector of the companies which are testing the driverless cars, so Google and Uber in particular, I like how their strategy just assumes they know that driverless cars are going to be the future, and that's just evident by how much they're investing into it. So much so that yeah. Google in February started um, legal proceedings against Uber over claims that Uber stole Google's technology for the driverless cars. Yes. Yes, yes. I mean, this is one one of the list of many things that Uber is getting hammered on. <laughs> in the last, in the last, in the last thing. But the reason they are getting hammered is because people are suddenly starting to realize that the thing that they are doing, the thing that Google are doing, is actually really, really important. Exactly. Um, and yeah. And okay. So we say okay, driverless cars. Well, you and me don't necessarily care if you know we're replaced by an automated car, right? We we're still going to have our cars. We're still going to go from A to B. And uh, that might be the case. But then think about the amount of uh, truck drivers, the amount of people whose job relies on being able to drive a car, um, delivery drivers, all those all those professions, which are entirely based on the capability of someone being behind the wheel and doing some other task like deliveries. OK, um, that that whole industry is going to is going to change when, when that happens. Of course, there's still other there's still other issues. For example, if you take um, a delivery driver, someone still needs to pick the delivery, go to the door, knock the door and deliver the item. But then companies are solving that in other ways. Amazon have, have recently completed their first flight in the UK and the first flight in the US of their delivery drones. So in in absence of having a driver, if you just have drones that are delivering items to to your door, then you know that takes the that takes the evolution of these things a little bit a little bit further on. Sure, but I if we think, think um, sorry. you touched on this idea, I want to say in the second episode of how if you have those drones which Amazon use for delivering their parcels. In effect, I think their theory is that because the proceedings of ordering and then receiving it has been probably like halvened or quartered, you're going to get more people ordering goods and then that creates jobs in another area of the company. So I think that's probably the argument that they would give to how automation isn't necessarily like a risk to society for now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, that's just taking, I've just taken one uh, sector, you know, uh, basically car transportation and I've just sort of extrapolated what's possibly going to happen none of this is known I could I just could be t- I could be chatting thin air here but <laughs> but many of this technology is proven and it's already out there doing its stuff even the UK military already employ driverless technology in their trucks and convoys um uh, around the UK and they've been tested on UK roads um, to deliver goods from one place to the next. And the UK military is already doing this. So the government is fully, fully aware. Okay, um, And so if we step back into this whole sort of job automation thing and we say, okay, well, fine, you're going to take uh, fairly highly uh, routine-based jobs. So let's just think about what kind of jobs those, those could be. Um, so we've talked about things like uh, delivery and transportation. Tube drivers, of course, um, they're striking a lot because lots of the new t- t- tube trains for 2020, I think, are automated. A bit yeah, like they're the DLR. automated. Exactly. So the DLR is already running an automated system. I think um, there's only ever a driver or a guard in sort of rare cases. But that is all pretty much already automated. Um, and then if we look at other industries, and this is where this is where I think it gets really cutthroat because people always assume that, okay, these are going to be low-skilled jobs that are going to get automated. A bit like you had manufacturing getting automated uh, and now you have machines that can produce thousands of goods per minute uh, much faster, much more efficient than a human being. But then if you take that concept to things that have typically rewarded people very, very well, let's take financial trading. Now that is facing a massive challenge right now as we speak in terms of automation because 
technology companies that are working in fintech, which is financial technology, basically, are developing uh, share and trading algorithms that are performing better than individuals on the stock floor. And the tactics that those algorithms are employing aren't even the same. They're doing a completely different type of uh, financial trading. They're doing high-frequency trading. So this is, this is like trading that's being done uh, hundreds of times per second, okay? So these are like very, very tiny transactions, and you're doing them so quickly to take benefit of, uh, of, of differences in prices that if you do them frequently and often enough at the kind of scale that these companies are doing it at, you are generating the same sort of return as you would do with these sort of long and short bets that we make typically on the stock market floor. Right. And, and that's posing a real big risk, um, again, to, to an industry that you would have thought is highly skilled and is therefore protected from automation. And so automation is coming for jobs at all levels of the of the industry. Like this isn't just some sort of um, you know thing that's going to affect one group of people. It's going to affect everyone, um, and it needs to be really, really well thought thought through. Uh, I'm just going to sort of go through some key sectors and the percentage uh, probability of automation. Okay. Okay. So if we if we look at sort of managers, directors, and senior officials, now a lot of what they do is quite unique in the sense that they're making decisions. They're quite creative decisions, I'm going to say. They're far from creative if you look at what some managers do. But yeah. <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of what's required of the individual, it's quite a creative task. You, you can't really algorithmically sort of recreate the way a manager or a particular individual thinks. I guess um, okay. you also add the variable of the art of negotiation in that as well. That's quite yes. something unique to the person. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. Um, so if you take managers, directors, senior officials, uh, professional occupations, um, those have about a 10% probability um, f- uh, for automation, um, largely because automation isn't going to necessarily replace those tasks wholesale, but it will, re- it will replace aspects that are typically uh, required uh, prerequisite for those decision-making processes. So if I take a simple example, a manager of 10 years ago would have asked his analyst to prepare some information, right? And that analyst would go away, prepare information, collate it for the manager. Manager would then read this document and then would therefore go make a decision, okay? Yeah. Now, what will happen is that automation will lead to a position where the options will already be presented to the manager and all they'll need to do is to see the effect of applying one over the other. And they'll be enhanced by automated tasks, so they'll be able to do things like predictive analytics, which will be partly automated, to predict the impact of the decisions they're making. So some of that some of that capacity is going to be automated, but the core brunt of the work is still going to need a, some sort of human to do some creative thinking. Okay. Um, now, if we if we start to look at um, slightly different types of roles, okay, and I'm going to take law as an example because this is what we actually started talking about last week, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we so I, we looked um, at law. I argued that you said that you could see lawyers being just not necessary for employment in say a few decades. Or I just couldn't see that. Yeah. 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 And so. Um, this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna refer to a really a really cool book actually. Um, uh, I highly recommend it. We're gonna put it in the show notes. Um, you can grab it on Amazon. Um, it's a really good read. Uh, it's by Richard and Daniel Susskind, the father and son. And what they talk about essentially is the future professions. And what I must say when I preface this this book is that it's a it's a very sort of um, aggressive perspective on the future of technology right they literally go all the way by showing examples of how certain jobs are going to be um are going to be sort of automated and by doing so they then refute some of the typical uh, sort of challenges that they often face and one of the sectors they pick on is law and what is really really uh, interesting is that they talk? They talk about this concept of disaggregation of tasks. Okay, so if I if I think of, if I think of a professional profession of a lawyer today, there's a whole range of tasks and skills that's required to be a lawyer. Of one of those is pre- is preparing legal documents. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, another one is checking for uh, legal compliance and making sure that things, uh, you know, sort of abide by the laws. Okay, uh, another aspect of that is. Uh, um, 
the dispute resolution. So when you're in the flow of a legal case and you're trying to handle a dispute between two or many individuals, okay? Um, so these are all the typical sort of subcomponents of the legal professions. And what's really interesting is that even today, there's already examples of automated systems providing legal assistance for cases where, for example, someone in your family passes away. There are systems that are already providing probate law. So probate law is essentially the law around what happens when someone in your family passes um, by and you have to go through the legal process of basically um, activating things like their will and their possessions and their right. goods, right? And there are automated systems that now let you basically go online, you fill in a couple of forms, you give it a couple of details, and then it generates for you uh, some, some legal guidance and legal documents for you without having to go through an individual now this this particular idea i was actually friends with someone who had a startup in this space and they've since sold on uh, this this concept to a legal firm who's now employing it large scale and that's just one example now that i would consider that low level automation because what the system is essentially doing is making sure that you have the right documents making sure you've provided them with the right information putting that together and using fairly standardized principles within the legal framework it's giving you some decisions and things to think about and also telling you where to go to get additional advice which is which is quite basic in all in all honesty that's the kind of thing in a in a law firm that you would i think I don't know. I've never done law, so I'm, I might be saying something heinous here. But just preparing those documents, putting those things together, that's a fairly mundane task. It's just a matter of getting the task done. It has to fit a certain framework. The framework doesn't change unless it's a legal change, and therefore it's fairly easy to automate, uh, automate that kind of task. Yeah, so with that idea, is it that the legal advice would be suggested by the system, but then... Is it that you pay to get that guidance or that's simply yes. a free bit of guidance which then refers you to another stage? Or So actually that, that's a paid bit of guidance. But the thing is, because it's automated and because it's a system, the margins are, are, are much, much, much easier for the law company to, to sort of make. So instead of paying uh, tens of thousands for get this advice, you could be paying in the you know single figures of thousands or high hundreds. Of because, course. Because you, can, you could, because you can simply roll this out um, as a system. It scales as much as the internet scales. And so if you if a thousand people hit your system, well, then you've just made a very, very good you know, return because you've already done the hard work of building the back end. So everything that comes in after that is, is, is basically just... just, just um, uh, net net positive cash flow. So the the, the authors of the book um, then go into sort of really challenges and they talk about things like dispute resolution being done online, virtual courts and automated uh, preparation of legal documents all happening because these things are already happening in a way now. So if you then take the legal profession, you go back to that and you say, well, there's no way a lawyer can be replaced. Yeah. And you can say, okay, fine. But if you then take the 10 components that make up the activities that a lawyer could do, and they get automated in different ways and in different forms, then you've essentially you've essentially done what you said couldn't be done before. So what, this are, is the, what are the um, 10 components, just off the top of your head? I was, I was, I was just using a, a figurative, figurative number. Okay. We've talked about two, two, two now. So things like probate law was one, one example where you have to go through the process of collecting the right documents, putting them together, and then getting the appropriate legal guidance around that. So legal guidance, uh, legal document preparation, those are two components, for example. Okay. Right. Um, things like dispute resolution is maybe another, another individual component. Virtual courts, i.e., the idea you need to go to a court to have these things done. Um, if, if basically courts are a framework for making decisions based on previous legal precedents and the ability to make a case and the ability to submit your case and have it heard in a fair way then you could for very very low low sort of um i don't know how to describe this um Sort of issues that aren't so severe, so things like murder or something like that would probably still need to go to a court, but very, very simple things like, oh, um, I had an injury claim, for example, those could essentially become yeah. uh, sub, sub, sort of a part of the virtual court sort of framework because it's a very easy thing to do. If certain criteria have been met, you can then, you can then, you can then sort of argue through, through those in, in a virtual space, as it were. Okay? So in terms um, of... Um the legal industry specifically do they not 
give too much preference to the idea of like face-to-face human interaction and trust or and so this is an interesting thing because they then go on to talk about this in section six uh sorry chapter six of the book and they actually do they do say that these things are important the face-to-face element is very important but then if we go back to our capitalist ways and we think about well what is the opportunity cost of um having a face-to-face interaction and some people might turn around and go priceless okay but if you can then make more people like there's so many people today who don't have access to legal systems purely because it's too costly. And if by reducing the cost in this way, you give more people access to the legal system, you might then find that for some people, for some people, they don't care if they don't get a face to face interaction right. because what they're getting instead is something that they never had access to. And it's a very difficult difficult argument to swallow. And it sounds sort of dismissive of, of, of the profession. But if you think about the pure economical sort of, you know, a demand supply argument, there is a point at which the opportunity cost of not having legal advice far outweighs the benefit of actually having that face-to-face interaction. Yeah, yeah, I accept the argument. And, and that's... And that I mean I I I can't quite fully reconcile that in my head. I have a gut feeling that that's sort of that's sort of the case, and I, I can see instances in other industries where that works. In law, it's slightly difficult because, as you rightly put last uh, last time and and again today, it is so important to have that sort of face to face interaction. So much of what being a lawyer is about is actually about gauging someone uh, in, 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 you know, seeing their expressions, seeing what they're saying and being in that courtroom to see what's going on. It's not just a, it's not just like a telephone conversation. It's a little bit more than that. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yes, I think we are a long way away from that, but that is one of the professions where if you just take that thinking and then you go to another profession which can so easily be diced up. If you think take things like retail, now we've talked about law. Let's go back to retail. And now if we talk about retail, can you not see how much easier it is to break that down? Well, uh, in it, link, it links back to your um, example of Amazon just a few minutes ago. If you had stores working in that sort of framework, all you would really need, security, but yes. even even stores now, they don't really have that many security personnel. I mean, it's usually just down to cameras and the whole um, system being alerted when someone steals something. So you could put oh, yeah. I could definitely see it in a case of where you'd only have, say, if you're taking a big supermarket and automation is working at max capacity, like max 10 people. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's quite an interesting prospect. And even that itself could be automated, i.e. you could have algorithms figuring out um, where theft is happening because you can you can make, for example, the Amazon system knows if theft is happening because it knows when someone walks out the store without paying. And sure. You, you, it knows that you are X and so-and-so and you didn't have enough funds in your Amazon account. So they can chase you up. They know who you are before you get into the store. So they know who you are before you leave. Uh, likewise, uh, if their AI system screws up, you could say that's a fault on their end. And so it's it's in their interest to sort of fix those ASAP. But I think you'll, you've touched on something there, which is really important. That is things like privacy, confidentiality, security, liability. These are concepts that, you know, are featured in this book, The Feature of Professions. But they're actually really important ones that still haven't been nailed because in, in order to have a fully automated future, uh, you're going to have to basically start thinking very differently about things like privacy, confidentiality, because uh, an automated system is going to have access to all areas, right? That's yeah. how that's how it works. So there's going to have to be this very, very sort of interesting friction sort of alignment between what we expect out of things like privacy and security and liability yeah, in the future and what it is now. Because liability, when an an automated system is doing something, where does that lie? Does it lie with the guy who developed the code or does it lie with the company that owns the, the thing that's doing the work? I think it would have to align with the companies. Simply put that, even though someone else produced it, it's the company's responsibility to take that idea and algorithm and then put it into a system where they try to make a profit out of it. So any negative consequence of that process i think has to fall back on them yeah exactly exactly and so i mean i mean that 
I mean, we've sort of, sort of, uh, we've sort of gone sort of around in a circle there, and we've, we've sort of given a, a rough example of of ways in which jobs could be automated. But I think the key, the key salient point there is the fact that everyone thinks of a job as being one homogenous thing. Um, for example, law is just, I'm a lawyer, full stop. Well, actually, being a lawyer consists consists of multiple tasks, multiple things you do on a day-to-day basis. And if you break it down professions that way, it's much easier to see how they become automated. It's much easier, for example, to see how someone who works in a bank's job can get automated because they have several tasks. For example, making a decision on a mortgage. That is essentially done by computers already. All that happens is someone tells you the decision. And sure. when you go on when you go online these days, you can get that decision straight away. Um, when you deposit money in a cash machine uh, and it adds it to your bank account, that's already an automated task. So you could say that the the concept of banking has already been automated. What's holding people back is this sort of uh, perception, right? So it's, there's still some people who prefer the human interaction. And so banks offer that service. But banking on your app, has gone through the roof. I think, Alvin, if you take how you used to do banking five years ago to today, it's radically different, right? Yeah, I mean, if I wanted to go to any banking service five years ago, it would have to be 80% of the time going with my mum or going on <laughs> yeah, my own. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like doing, it on, exactly. doing it online or on the phone just was not an option. But Exactly. And now coming today back, it's... Coming back to now, if I couldn't access my bank account on my phone, that would be a serious issue for me. Exactly. Even if you couldn't move money around on your phone, leave alone access your bank account. Just move money around, do things like payments and transactions. Just the the flexibility of knowing that if you need to send money to someone, you can just flip an app and do it. Changes the way you think about how you have your cash. Um, You have less money in your wallet. You don't carry around £50 notes like people used to ages ago, just in case you needed to, to buy something or do something. You have more money in an electronic sort of format. Um, ready to go. Sure, yeah. Off that point, just a quite a tangent. What do you think of um, HSB's sort of division bank called First Direct, which sort of tries to put the primacy on a lack of that technological yes. aspect and more on the face to well, all of it on the face to face interaction? So that's really interesting because First Direct have always, I remember being a customer of theirs and I really enjoyed it. Um, the, the the thing the issue that I had with with it was I needed student banking facilities and they didn't offer that so uh, at the time I just went back to HSBC and now West uh, yeah but I think I think when when First Direct came about they were in a time where that was something that people were really keen on if you think back to when those the First Direct was formed and when they were really 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 big and popular uh, that was sort of their thing but now in today's world. Um, you could say that what they did was actually prove that you didn't need a banking facility in order to have a bank. And now that we have digital spaces, you could easily see them moving most of that sort of um, skill into a digital space, right? So into apps and into platforms. And so I think they're still a relevant company. I think they just need to digitize some of that value that they've created in terms of customer experience into a digital space. So can can you have an app that does some of the things they do? Yes. And therefore increases, again, customer customer satisfaction. If you look at what Monzo is doing, we talk about Monzo every podcast now, um, If you look at what Monza are doing, that is essentially the model that First Direct would follow, you know, trying to do as much of a bank in the app. And, you know, this week, just gone, Monza became a bank official. So they've started rolling out current accounts to some of the early uh, subscribers. Um, they've gone, they've succeeded in getting their second round of funding, which is really cool. Uh, and now they're going wholesale with current accounts. So it's a really, really big, big thing. Is that in the UK as well? Worldwide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in the UK, in the UK. Man, I should have invested. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> should have yeah. invested. I got my I got my investment in, don't worry. <laughs> it's all good. Um, so, okay, so I just wanted to do one last thing, I guess, on this topic. Um, all right. I feel like we've, we've covered all the, all the key things. And I just wanted to take the top 10 jobs in America that employ the most people, okay? And um, we'll just see sort of, I just want to do a blow-by-blow sort of analysis. You and me just thinking. Which ones are most at risk of getting automated? Yeah, exactly. So let's just give it a rating of 1 to 10, um, 10 being highly likely to be automated, uh, 0 being not at all. All right, should we say within the next two decades? 
Yes. Okay. I'd say let's be more aggressive within the next decade. Okay. 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 So let's start with the top job that employs most people in America. It's uh, retail salespeople at four and a half million. Oof. <laughs> exactly. Um, Oof. <laughs> <not Yeah>. right. <laughs> um, uh. My my personal gut instincts. This in the next decade. That's about a six in terms of automation. Yeah, right? I think so, by the theory we've discussed, I want to say much higher, like an A. But yeah, I'd go around five. Yeah, okay, yeah. So f- six or five, only because in the next decade, they've got quite a, there's quite a, there's quite a few challenges yet to happen, okay? Um, and you've got, you know, Donald Trump in office. So if you think about the United States, this is likely to slow down before it actually exactly. Exactly. But anyway, uh, retail... We've given that a rating of five. If you were, if you're looking at the next twenty years, I'd go full hard nine, um, because you know in that time the industrial revolutions don't take that kind of long to to have an impact. Sure. So next next job is cashiers. So uh, these are people at tills basically. Um, uh, three, three and a half million uh, employed in the U.S. I would say seven or eight. Yeah, I'd say seven, eight, even go as far as nine because. You've started to see automated uh, checkout points. It's funny because America is not as far ahead with uh, contactless payments as we are in the UK. Is it so not? So it's oh. harder. No, no, it's not at all. It's harder. It's harder in America to use Apple Pay than it is here in the UK. Uh, only because we've done contactless payments so quickly, at least in the south of England, that it's very quickly catching on. And I think in the next five years. I think everywhere will have a contactless uh, terminal. If you still if you still travel outside of London, you'll still find the odd place which doesn't quite have contactless terminals fully installed. But retailers are working aggressively, and whenever there's contactless, then you can get you can get that kind of stuff. So I was I quite cash- surprised actually how quickly it got taken up. Because when did Apple Pay get released? Sort of twenty fifteen, late twenty fifteen. Well, it's less Apple Pay and more contactless payments. Contactless payments, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think Apple, by building their technology around contactless payments, made it easy for people to adopt Apple Pay. But anyway, that's another another discussion. Um, The third profession is combined food preparation and serving workers, including fast food. So these are basically people who work in fast food establishments or prepare food in, like, factories and so on and so forth. Um... I want I, I, I want to say quite low just cuz I don't know if the automation that you could introduce to that sort of industry would still have the same level of like attention to detail that you get from someone being hands-on with the products. So yeah, I'm going to yeah. say four. Yeah, that's fair. I think so. I think um manufacturing is already automated and my feeling is if if this was possible, it would have been done already. Um, things like packaging is automated. Things like quality control is automated. You have these funky laser-based computers looking at food. You know, peas, for example, when they're when they're serving up peas into a bag, a frozen pack of peas. Do you know how they're analysed? No. Each pea is analysed by a camera and a laser to check that it's the right size and the right whatever. And if it's not, another machine blows a little jet of air to push the pea into another bucket that's really the bucket funny. where it goes exactly you can see machines on youtube that are doing this for hundreds of peas per second not even joking <laughs> it's crazy so but the thing is you're right there's still a human aspect needed there because there's just some things in the, in the food production process that needs a human touch okay so office clerks and uh, general office workers this is number four uh it employs roughly three million people in the u.s so we're talking like administrative type of work yeah, clerical work, yeah. Um I'd say hmm. On say five, simply because I think big companies, because they have a lot of capital behind them, would be quite quick to automate these type of things, but in terms of medium and small businesses, economically I don't think it would be worth them to employ automation into their system versus the actual cost of getting that into their framework. Yeah, yeah. So that's a very valid point. Um, the sort of initial cost of automation could be 
substantial enough that it's still cheaper and economically long term sort of viable to to keep to keep people in in their jobs. Um, but it's interesting because as that technology becomes more modular and easier easier and to discover and lower cost, which it will, um, then you know that number will change, rise. The number will rise and it will be much much sharper change. Um, you've got nursing registered nurses at around three, just under three million, so two point eight million. Uh, I'd say this is one of those ones that's going to be the last to go in terms of automation. Yeah, I'd say that's um, quite low, probably like one. <laughs> that said, that said, and this is where I'm going to say you're right, but you're wrong again. Um, we've got a massive healthcare issue looming. Do you know what it is? Superbugs. Um, so no, it's not superbugs. What it is is the care of the elderly in care homes. Okay, and this is a really big problem in Asia, believe it or not, and. Like, believe it or not, in Asia, the solution they're thinking of looking after the increasingly aging population is robots and automation. Purely because there is not enough healthcare professionals to do the work. And there's not enough demand. And people are not willing to pay enough money for these services. Even here in the UK, you're hearing about this crisis going on where the largest part of most budgets in each council is actually care of the elderly and care home nursing. Okay, and this is getting so so costly that people are now starting to look at robot technology that can possibly help with this, help with the care of the elderly. Oh. Um, so it's definitely one to to look out for, and you wouldn't expect it. It's not something that we're experiencing here in in the UK much, but in in Asia, as a lot of the robotics is focused on care and nursing. Yeah. So this is why this is why this is why this is an interesting one because. I think people think of nursing as, uh, you know, hospital nurses. Of course, that's always going to stay manned by individuals. However, some of the support services behind that, some of the basic care, some of the recovery care, stuff that's done at home, stuff that's done in care homes, that needs a much, much bigger workforce than it currently has. And one of the only ways to solve that is, again, um, robotics and automation. Right. Should we move on to the next one? Yeah, uh, customer service representatives, uh, you know, calling up a call center and so on and so forth. Um, I'd say that's a solid uh, eight because some of those systems are already automated. Yeah. And if not, they're moving them to an even more automated um, sort of setup. Yeah, I'd say eight or nine. Yeah. Um, and then the rest are sort of, I'm just going to sort of group the, the these ones. So I'm just going to list off a few professions. We can score them together. So I'm going to say laborers and freight workers, you know, stock and material movers. So basically people who work in, um, you know, warehouses and, and right. stock, stock, stock places. Again, I'd say this is a solid nine. Yeah, I'd say nine. A lot of these systems are already automated. If you look at some of the modern warehouses, um, if you go to Argos, for example, um, they have a really cool computerized system which uh, automatically you know, sends a message to some guy in the warehouse say, hey, I need this item. It goes into a conveyor belt system and boom, out comes the, out comes the, the product. Uh, and in, in London, high street stores for things like shoes, you have really sophisticated systems that can get something from the warehouse uh, or the back stock room into the store very, very quickly, faster than it used to take humans to do the same task so this is a this technology that's sort of coming in into retail but is also happening in large warehouses on mass yeah um waiters and waitresses secretaries administrative assistants uh medical and executive expert legal uh like uh, clerical work as well uh these are these are sort of these jobs employ roughly five million people okay so that's a re- very group of, very big group of people and they're they're basically mostly clerical a bit like office clerks that we talked about earlier on but this is i guess slightly lower level yeah okay um i'd say this is this is a five in the next 10 years i thought thought you would have put put it higher maybe a seven i'd say not because of the sheer amount of people there are there so even if you were to find a way of doing this initially the technology would still be quite hard to implement in into the workplace and so what you really need is um the technology to take place elsewhere before you can really apply it properly um in these sectors so this is again it's going to be one of the last places that these things happen yeah um and then we've already talked about um sort of managers and so on and so forth so those those are the 10 top 10 professions um i mean combined they probably employ roughly i'm gonna take a stab at like 35 million uh, 40 million people that sounds about right and and 
Like we we gave nothing lower than like a four or a five, right? Yeah, I think um, registered nurses got probably a two. Oh yeah, two between us. Exactly, exactly. So if you just take a, an average of sort of five across the whole the whole thing, uh, and we take thirty five million, that's roughly fifty percent of the jobs there stand to be automated, and that's just in the top ten professions in the in the US. It's crazy, right? Yeah, and it's just um. It's an interesting question for government in the sense that they're going to have to facilitate a system where retraining is easier for people. That's not a hassle. And also that they're investing in the right areas to where they can cope with the trade-off between jobs becoming automated, but then new jobs appearing at the same time. Yeah. I mean, one of the things the Bank of England uh, did say a couple of years back is that Eventually, what's going to happen because of automation is the cost of training someone is going to become too high relative to the cost of getting an automated system in that can work productively from day one. And when that starts to happen, then it becomes the pace at which automation will take over is going to just only accelerate because, uh, again, businesses will think long term and they'll say, well, why am I going to spend uh, X amount training this person over the next five years to do the job to this standard? when today I can really go out and get an automated system that can do it to the same and more consistent standard uh, with no additional cost other than maintenance and the initial initial setup. Of course. Yeah. Okay, uh, I think we've covered all the bases there. Um, it's a very sort of strange topic because it's it's very hard to sort of... We're basically behaving like profits. We're trying to predict what's going to happen in the future. And to be honest, we have no clue. So um, it's a very sort of interesting sort of space i think what we need to do is sort of pay attention to which is the first sector that's likely to go in to get this sort of um high attention in terms of automation and the government and also the public awareness yeah so i think that will be it i think driverless trains or tube trains will probably be the first one and and, and driverless cars again when uber start rolling out uh, driverless cars around london i think that will probably catch people's attention They've do already google have driverless in- cars roaming about yeah, they in the do. UK a lot or is it just they America? Do, they do. Um no, it's just America. So what 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 these companies have is basically they have the ability to test driverless cars. They don't have the ability to sort of run driverless car fleets. Okay. Um in America certain states have this permission that you can have a driverless car on the road as long as a driver is still behind the wheel and can take over any moment in time. Right. So technically the cars are driving themselves, but there's always someone by the seat. Yeah. Um, So that's how Google, that's how Tesla, all these companies are doing driverless miles around the country because the the law there is still quite permissible. I think in the UK, there's a little bit more regulation, um, which which, which is just preventing that innovation happening here. Right. Well, yeah, I think we should close it up. Okay, cool. So, yes, you've been listening to A Decade Apart, the politics and technology podcast. Um, we've, uh, we've, we've been setting up social media profiles, so you can now find us on Facebook um, and on Twitter. The handle on both of those is Decade Apart Pod. Um, give us some feedback on Twitter and on iTunes if you have a spare moment. We really appreciate the feedback, especially reviews on iTunes. It really helps other people discover the show and it helps us improve the show. Um, I think we're going to be having a show next week about capitalism, right? Yeah, we will. Yeah, that'll be um, really interesting. Exactly. So where technology and capitalism and politics sort of come together. And it's based off on the podcast that we mentioned before, Exponent. So it'll be nice to sort of link our ideas to theirs. Okay, exactly, exactly. So um, if you've got ideas for episodes you you'd, or topics you'd like us to cover do send those in as well uh, we're always interested in in seeing what comes in so uh, absolutely send that our way um and last but not least you can find all our content and all our show notes on decade apart uh, a day sorry i'm going to start again and last but not least you can find all our show notes and all the information about the podcast both today and in the past at decadeapart.com uh, the show notes for this episode are at decadeapart.com forward slash five. Uh, I can't believe it's our fifth episode, mate. I oh, know. We're getting halfway <laughs> through to Big Ten. Uh, Big Ten, exactly, exactly. We need to keep up the cadence. Uh, and then we'll, and we'll, we'll get to 50 going. soon. Exactly, exactly. Let's do, go to a weekly podcast. We'll smash it in a year. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, cool. All right, take it easy, mate. All right, mate, take it easy. Speak to you later. Hi, you're listening to The After Show. The After Show is essentially the part of the show where we add in everything we couldn't add into the main show itself. All the little pranks, all the little jokes, and the conversation we have at the end of the podcast, that all goes into The After Show. Enjoy. Okay. Cool. Nice one. Cool. That was a bit hard, wasn't it? That was quite hard, actually. It's um, yeah. It's hard to... Because it's so connected to a lot of things we've talked about before it's really hard to just like stay in and focus purely on this yeah exactly, exactly. i think i think uh, we did a decent job yeah it was good it was good it's good fun um so what were we talking about oh running shoes oh man they're good they're really good um so the, the whole reason i got them is because i've been running in in on trails with uh normal running road running shoes right for but like, but like, it's just not good enough when you're running on dirt, on mud, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I can imagine. I just sort of had enough. I had a voucher for uh, the sweatshop, which I got for Christmas. So I, I used that towards the knee pad. So they're they're called the Solomon uh, Speed Cross Fours. They're sort of the newest model of like a really sort of much loved cross trail shoe. So yeah, I think a really I good purchase. I sold um, I want to say last year's version of that shoe to um an old lady. At the sports shop yeah. used to work at. Yeah. Yeah, really exactly. Nice. Really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're proper, proper. So I uh, highly recommend them. I'm going to be going lots more trail ra- uh, trail, trail running as well with Toby as well. Have you um, listened to Kendrick's new album? I have. I'm a bit mixed feelings. I think I'm just going out of date with hip-hop. That's really, that's really yeah. sad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just listened to it and it's just like, ah, oh, this, this is not connecting with me. What do you think of it? I think it's um, after To Pimp a Butterfly, which I think is just a classic in terms of music in general, not even contained to rap. It's very hard to release a project within that amount of space of time, which could be considered better. I think it's, I like the whole idea of how he ended To Pimp a Butterfly with Mortal Man and that whole concept of becoming a leader in society, but then society liking to dismantle their leaders at the same time and how... He's sort of still dealing with the issues he deal, dealt with on To Pimp a Butterfly on Dam. But I think you sort of get the message by like the first six or seven songs. Not the first six or seven, but if you took eight songs out of the album, the best ones, you could still get that same message without like maybe four or five more. So I think that's probably where it falls down a little bit in my estimation, but I'd still give it like eight out of 10. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I'm still, I'm still holding my rating. I'm I'm waiting to listen to it again. Cause you know, sometimes you can listen to something and you're not in the right mood. So I may be yeah. waiting for another opportunity to listen to it and then we'll go from there. I mean, I've listened to it like, I want to say seven times in total. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> still haven't listened to it enough though in my mind. Yeah, exactly. Um, I must say today, well done on the on less swearing. Oh yeah, I know. I um, <laughs> cons- consciously tried not to. Actually, to be fair, after the first five minutes, I didn't find it too hard at all. I think I just sort of, <laughs> if I start swearing a lot, I just go down a vicious cycle. Uh good, good work. Yeah, good we work, can um, um, we can open, we can leave off the explicit tag of this episode. <laughs> Uh, it's always funny. It's always funny. Yeah. So, uh, how have you been all week? What have you been up to? Not bad. Just um working. Like lectures and stuff start tomorrow, so it's just all revision based. Um, got rugby dinner actually on Wednesday next week, which will be really fun. Cool. But cool. and you're back in Durham, right? Yeah, back in Durham. It's just weird, nice. sort of like getting to this time of the year, and it's like. You're working relatively hard, like from September last year up till now, but now it's sort of like the sprint stage. And it always feels a lot more intense, but it should be okay. Yeah, yeah. These things happen. I mean, you just have to, you just have to, um, you get used to it. I think the end of your second year is the, the harshest one because you realize you're going into your final year. Yeah. Like, oh, damn. I know yeah. that's like, I'm not, I'm nearly 20. I'm not a teenager anymore. Aww. Like, <laughs> like I'm. You just realise you've grown up. 
I mean, I don't see my, I never saw, I don't see myself as a kid now, but like, I feel once I get 20, it's like, you're officially not a kid, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I'm scary, yeah, and like, having to think about, seriously think about jobs and stuff, not even just like a fleeting thought, is quite um, <laughs> interesting. Wowzers, wowzers. But, um, it's all good. The fact that you say you can't connect with rap actually makes me really sad. <laughs> But the thing is, I can. I can connect with all the stuff I used to listen to. Oh, and so I'm finding, all the past I'm finding, stuff. I'm, I'm finding, I'm finding. Like, uh, let me go to my Spotify right now, and and I'll share, I'll, I'll, I'll share some tracks with you that I have, like, that are recent. I just don't think I'm connecting with like the particular sort of angle that Kendrick is, 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 is really going down. It's really hardcore sort of like um, uh, area. So, one thing I've been listening to tons recently is Grime. Ah, uh, yes, Jeremy. Yeah, Le- Lethal Bizzle, Jeremy, Stormzy. Um, like, yeah, like, that, that has been going down, like, really, really well. I've been listening to Rick Ross recently. Oh, yeah, he put um, a new album out. I can't remember what, yeah, it, what yeah. it's called, though. Uh, Big Sean. There's Big a song Sean's called good. Bounce Back, Bounce Back, which is which I, which I really like. Um, uh, I've been listening to some Nicki Minaj, Drake, and Lil Wayne again. What do you um make? Where would you rate Drake as a rapper? So, Drake to me, I think I think it's really difficult to compare rappers because they were all born in different times, and and the, the sort of the, the 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 upshot to that is the fact that because of that, they all have access to different levels of popularity. Yeah. So if you if you took Tupac and he was launched today and Biggie was launched today, I mean, they would absolutely annihilate anyone on the on the field. Like, if those artists were producing music today as their first thing, with access to all the technology, fans and social media platforms that modern musicians have access to, it would absolutely wipe the floor. And I'm not even joking. And this is the thing everyone. That I, you don't think anyone would c- compete? No one would come close. Oh, that's no interesting. One that's would come interesting. Close. I disagree with no that. No one would come close. Like, even, even, even... The only person who I think is still applicable in the modern world today and would have done well then is Jay-Z. Because he has, he has literally seen the, the, the period of times... He has seen everything in the industry. He's produced music in both the old, the middle, and the modern era. Like, and the thing, I, the thing I hate is that you know it's hard for me to say, okay, Drake, Drake, you're amazing. No, Drake is amazing because the marketing engine behind him is amazing. Yeah. Like, if you look at his music, it's not sensational. Yes. It's not finally, the kind of music. Not, <laughs> <laughs> if you look at the music that he's he's selling and everything. Like, the marketing engine is what's doing the work in the background. I mean, he's a very marketable artist. I look at him and I think, ah, yes, you know, he's a cool guy. And I I listen to his music and it's very poppy. It's very, like, chart-topping. It's very easy music. It's not, it's not, he's not doing anything to challenge our preconceptions of what music is. Yeah. I'd almost go as far as to say grime music does more to challenge what's possible in music than Drake does. And and grime is nowhere relative to Drake as a I as think artist, it's um right? yeah, because grime just in terms of that genre of music, just the environment it creates where you're always trying to be the best than everyone else in the field. You sort of have no other choice but to take risks with how you sound sonically and your lyricism. Yeah, exactly. As well. Exactly, exactly. And so yeah, I mean, I hate I hate to be so cutting about Drake, but the thing is, I like Drake. I like what he does because he does do something that not enough artists do today, and that is follow up with something equally strong. Like this is another trend in R and B, like uh, hip hop and rap. The first two albums are great, and then uh, like people just falling through the floor on, so the fourth, on the third, fourth album. And again, if you go back to back in the day. You know, your Tupacs, your Biggie Smalls, your Jay-Z's, like, album after album after, like, literally. I mean, like, just, to that, Tupac and solid. Biggie weren't allowed to drop off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's unfortunately, true. but... That's true, that's true. But here's the thing, like, the, back then, you used to get five, six, seven albums that were great from hip-hop rap artists. Now they do their first album, which is all about making big. Second album, which is like, now they're big, they've got money. Third album is now how they struggle to have friends because they've got money. And then the fourth album, they're just like, don't know what to do. And you literally don't hear about them any time after that. I don't, um, see, that's where I have hope for people like Kendrick, Joey Badass as well, I'll put in that category. 
J. Cole. I think yeah. they sort of fall into your analysis where they're only two or three albums in and they've been incredible or very good so far. But I think because of the type of content which they're speaking about, it sort of has that longevity and it does, it's not as susceptible to say fall back under because they haven't gone the usual route of I'm famous, now I've got money, I don't know what to do with the money, now I've still got the money, yeah, I'm still famous, which a lot of rappers seem to go by. Yeah, so, okay, if I was to ask you, who's the greatest rapper alive today, who would you say? Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, and you see, the part of me just can't agree with that either. For like... me, in terms... Okay, ignoring ignoring the brand, ignoring the marketing, if you're just looking at the albums, the music, how it sounds, I mean, you have to account for, like, different producers as well, so it's always a little bit skewed, but I think in the art of rapping, lyricism, bar by bar, accounting also who writes their own lyrics as well. I can't think of anyone who raps better than Kendrick. I can think of people who could write to a similar level, but not better. That's alive today? Yeah, so I'd say Eminem could rap as well as Kendrick. Hmm. I'd even say say Jay-Z could rap as well as Kendrick. And then you go into that, okay, well, what is what do you mean by rap? Because if you're talking about the best rappers, literally the art of rapping, I'd say Buster Rhymes is the best rapper on that, on that today. Yeah, he but can I, rap, but I think, and he's a lyricist, like a proper lyricist. True, but then there's content as well, <laughs> which I think affects it as well. I think for me, in terms of like mm. where I understand rap to originate, it's sort of the content grew out of that sort of like NWA era in terms of like the rap that is quite popular now and sort of like yeah perpetuating a struggle that you feel so you can relate relate to other people who's feeling a struggle as well i sort of feel like you don't necessarily have to talk about that stuff because like you should never constrict yourself to a box but i feel like if you don't make your lyrics both relatable and real then yeah i just i just can't put you as a top five that's why to me drake can never be a top five rapper ever fair enough like no matter how many platinum album he sells or if he's streaming number one on spotify or apple music for like decades yeah no that's fair that's fair yeah it's interesting i need i'm 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 reconnecting with music again at the moment i'm just trying to see uh sort of where i end up i'm half discovering old artists um I'm also half trying to figure out which genre do I now sit in. I went through this period where I went from rap to drum and bass to basically nothing. And now I'm like coming back to everything all at once. Oh, you loved so, drum and bass at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I still do. I still do love drum and bass. It's, it's, it's like so good. It's only because it goes so well with sport and so much of what I do. Like it's really active. That's so, so true. It, it goes really nicely. Anyway. All right, I'm going to wrap it up here, mate. Yeah, uh, I've got to go. Up. Yeah, so yeah. still got stuff to uh, do. Just try and uh, send us a recording anytime today, hopefully by the end of today, so I can edit it. Yeah, yeah we'll do, mate. Nice one. Okay, cool. All right, take it easy. You too. Bye. All right, bye. So in terms of follow-up, uh, let's start by highlighting, we have a Facebook page, right? Yeah, it's called um, A Decade Apart Technology and politics podcast so yeah wow. we launched it on thursday and nearly 100 likes so you, you 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 read that you said that as if you'd never heard of the podcast before i know let's <laughs> i knew oh. what never mind all right let's do it um no no no, no. what are you doing that was part of the show you weren't meant to stop just oh, I don't... <laughs> 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 i've actually butchered that <laughs> you pictured that like a fucking bug. <laughs> I'm, I'm not on my game today. It's okay. Um, yeah, can you just can you just introduce that again? Oh my days! I was so that amateur again. <laughs> Well, she should stop the show again. <laughs> right from the top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's just do that. I think that's easier than having to edit this out. <laughs>
Okay, okay.